Well, we have arrived at Paul's last defense. It's going to be a speech that is, in a sense, a legal defense. But this one's going to be a little different because he doesn't spend a whole lot of time arguing any kind of innocence before a worldly court. But Paul's goal will be the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So what we learn is that God is faithful to his purposes. And Paul is going to be faithful in the proclamation of the gospel in light of what God had commanded him to do. Do you recall chapter 9, verse 15? Listen to this. But the Lord said to him, who was Ananias, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So once the Lord Jesus appears to Paul in all of his glory, and Paul is transformed from Saul to Paul, and he's saved, Ananias is a little bit afraid to go and have anything to do with this Saul of Tarsus, and for good reason. But the Lord reminds Ananias of what he had called Paul to do. So you are seeing... In the book of Acts, the fulfillment of God's promise. This is what my servant will do. And then you see the obedience of Paul proclaiming the gospel before the kings and rulers of the world and the children of Israel. So what we have in the last few chapters is Paul bearing witness before kings and rulers and the people of Israel. Now, I know this may cause you great consternation, but we're going to actually preach two chapters today. You don't have church tonight, right? 25 and 6. Chapter 25 and chapter 26. Chapter 25 is, of course, loaded with historical details. And we could spend a lot of time there. But Luke's main point in giving you the background is to supply you with information leading up to this last offense. Because it is, I feel, it is the fifth one, of course. But I think it's the most important one and the most detailed of all the defenses that Paul is going to give. So chapter 25, think about this. The Holy Spirit of God leads Luke, the physician and historian, to write. Of course, you don't have chapter headings in Greek. You understand that. But just think about the the massive amount of scriptures used in chapter 25 to set up chapter 26. So I would say to you today that that's important. It's important for you to think about Luke led by the Holy Spirit, giving all this detail to set you up for chapter 26. And again, 26 will not be as much of a legal defense as it will be a gospel proclamation. And Paul's going to carry the gospel to Festus and to Agrippa. And you know the story. He's on his way to Rome. And when we get to chapter 27, that will be his course. Now, here's what we're going to do. Chapter 25, let's read the first three verses. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea, and the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they argued him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem, because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Now, Festus, Portius Festus, was in the minds of the Jewish people, according to writings, he was appreciated more than Felix. Felix was a disaster politically. He was cruel and oppressive and greedy. 
But here we have a new ruler, and it is Festus, uh, and he's arrived into the province. And we find it very interesting, again, that they're bringing out that same uh, unsubstantiated charge against Paul. They're wanting to do their best to get rid of this man. And the Bible tells us something interesting in verse 3. It speaks of priests in the plural. Now, if you know Israelite history, how many priests do you have reigning at one time? One. History tells us it's probably Ishmael at this time. Then why does it say priests, plural? It's because Ananias, the one that was, on, that was leading the trial when Jesus was crucified, was still around. And in pastoral life, we actually talk about a pastor emeritus. Well, this dude was like a high priest emeritus. And he was still around, and he still wanted to get rid of Jesus. So that's an interesting tidbit of knowledge. But the fact is, they're wanting to have Paul stamped out. They want him out of the way. Do you remember those 40 assassins? That are, they're probably getting hungry by now, right? Because if you remember what they did, they took this curse against themselves that they would break the sixth commandment uh, so that they would kill Paul. And they would... They, so we're not going to eat, we're not going to drink till this guy's dead. So they're getting very, very hungry at this point. And they're getting ready again to have this ploy to have Paul ambushed and killed. Perhaps Festus being new, they thought, well, he's a young guy, new guy on the block, and maybe he doesn't know as much about Paul. And maybe he would just uh, want to get rid of Paul so he didn't have to deal with it. But Festus, controlled by the providence of God, I'm trusting you're going to read chapter 25 today. Okay, so I don't read every verse, but controlled by the providence of God, Festus, instead of having Paul delivered to Jerusalem, Festus says, why don't you guys just come on down to Caesarea and let's deal with this situation. And that's what happens. So, in, of course, the ambush is thwarted. God trumps the wicked plans of man once again. And then when you get down to verse 6, Festus is on his Bema seat. And verse 7, they give the allegations. And Luke underscores two things. They're serious charges, but they're unprovable. Okay? Keep that in mind. Paul enters a not guilty plea again. And then Festus decides to give the Jews a political favor. And he says, why don't we send him down to Jerusalem for a trial? What do you all think about that? That's not a good move, is it? And according to the providence of God again... Paul knows the Sanhedrin's intentions, and according to the providence of God, Paul will play that card he has, which is called Roman citizenship. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about how important that was going to be. And so upon appealing to Caesar, Festus could have given him an acquittal, yet he was a new governor. He needed to keep favor with the Jews, and Romans always sought to capitalize on the compromisers in, Jew, in the Jewish life. And Ananias was one of them. We know that. He compromises so much that in AD 66, he's going to be killed by, in the Jewish wars by Jewish nationalists. So in 13 through 27, we have Festus and Agrippa. Who is this Herod, Agrippa? Well, he's the second. If you remember Herod the Great that was around with John the Baptist and Christ, here is Herod Agrippa II, and Bernice is his sister. Someone mentioned it under the breath. That's correct. And so you have this going on. Herod Agrippa is the governor of the neighboring region. But also the curator of the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Now folks, stay with me. This is important. He 
was given a place by the Roman Empire to look over the temple and the cultural aspects of the religion of the Jewish people. So he, needs, he, he, he has within himself the ability to, as an expert, to know everything going on in Jewish life and then to transfer that over to the Roman understanding. And so this guy knows Jewish history up one side and down the other. And so he is the one that is there at this particular time. And he's an expert, and Paul knows this. And as the text unfolds, you will see what's going on. In verse 26, verse 23, let's listen to this. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp. So here, I know I'm skipping forward, but for your sake of time and your understanding, you better be thankful I'm skipping forward, okay? So notice the great pomp. The Romans knew how to do pomp and circumstance. They arrive with all this incredible uh, regality, regal robes, everything. They've got dignitaries. They've got the military. It's the who's who of the day. But can you catch the irony? Here is Paul, who they bring in, if you read the text. And Paul is in prisoner's clothes, and he's in chains. But I've got news for you this morning. He is the ambassador this day for the king, not Rome. Notice the irony. God is in control, not Rome. Just get this in your mind. We, we probably can't picture this. With all the royal robes and funny hats and, and pomp and circumstance of the leading uh, world power of the day coming together, military, everybody, and here is the chosen servant of the Lord obeying God in chains, in prisoner's clothing. And he represents the King of kings and Lord of lords. So, chapter 26 is one of Paul's most detailed defenses. It's a unique gospel presentation. And we're going to go through this. Paul's goal in 26 will not be to be dismissed as a prisoner. His goal will be to share the gospel. What would your goal be if you were before all Roman authorities and the Sanhedrin and you were given an account for the gospel and you knew that you could die? What would you do? Would you be faithful to proclaim the gospel or would you do whatever it takes, whatever it might take to get out of dying and get yourself freed? There's something more important in chapter 26 than Paul's freedom. And that was to share the gospel of Jesus Christ to Agrippa. That was his goal. So, chapter 26. Have you ever seen me cover a chapter that fast? Isn't that amazing? <laughs> chapter 25. Now, verse 20, chapter 26. So Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defense. There are other times when Paul does this. And here's what he says. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defense today against all the accusation of the Jews, especially because you are familiar. There we are. He was the curator. He was the go-between. He knew everything about the Jewish faith. And Paul knows this, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and the controversies of the Jews. Was the resurrection of Jesus controversial? You better believe it. Therefore, I beg you to listen to me patiently. So Paul gives this introduction, and the one thing he says as he beckons for people to be quiet is, Would you please give patience? 
for the hearing of what I have to say. And I would remind all of you this morning that that's the most important thing you could ever do to this sermon being preached today. Is to listen patiently. Let the word of God speak. In verse 4, notice Paul gives his credentials as a Pharisee. My manner of life from my youth spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. Just notice how he's doing this. He's setting it up because every Jew knew Saul of Tarsus. He's setting this up. What an incredible testimony. You remember through the days we used to do gospel presentations and we'd talk about post, we'd talk about uh, pre-conversion, conversion, and post-conversion, what's going on in your life. It's kind of what Paul was doing, is he not? He's setting the stage. This, this is what I look like pre-Christ, before Jesus saved me. And he's giving this background information. The beginning among my own nation in Jerusalem is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope and the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O king. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Man, can y'all feel the passion in Paul's life as he begins to put the gospel out to his own people as well as Agrippa? So Paul says, look, folks, I was a Jewish fundamentalist. I was as far right as a Jew and a Pharisee you could possibly B, I was of the strictest sect of the Pharisees. The people around him that day knew very well who Saul of Tarsus was. He studied at the feet of Gamaliel. And A.T. Robertson says of Paul when he was being reared in Pharisaical teaching that Paul was a leader and a star for the hope of his sect. That's how they thought of Paul the Pharisee. That's how the people around him thought of him. And I'm sure Agrippa knew who Saul of Tarsus was. I'm sure he had heard the stories and knew who he was. He was entrenched and immersed in the customs of the people. And Paul says, what you need to understand, Agrippa and Festus, I'm on trial for the promise. Y'all find that interesting? That Paul would say, I'm on trial for the promise. He has had some uh, strings on his guitar as he's preached the gospel through many sections of Scripture, correct? But Paul's got one string on his guitar right now before Felix, uh, before Festus, and before Agrippa. And that one string is to remind them of the promise, folks. Every one of the Israelites standing in that room lived for that promise. They were anticipating. They believed that promise from the Old Testament. So here it is. Paul is saying to them, now you've got to look behind the scenes. The Christ that I'm preaching, the gospel that I preach, is in perfect continuity with the entire Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi. When he says that, that's what he's saying. He's reminding them in their mind of Genesis 3.15. From the seed of woman shall come the Messiah. He's reminding them of Deuteronomy 18 that Moses said... There was one coming after me who was greater than me, and you better listen to him. They knew this, folks. They knew the king of glory, Psalms. 
They knew Isaiah 53 that the suffering servant would come. So the Jews that listened that day, they were anticipating this promise. So it was that very testament. Now, now notice how awesome this is. Paul is saying this is, it was the very Old Testament that pointed to the promise of which Jesus Christ is the absolute and final uh, fulfillment of all the promises of the Old Testament. And Jesus is saying, I mean Paul is saying before all these people, I'm on trial for that promise. I'm on trial for the coming of the Messiah, the age of the Spirit. I'm on trial for the resurrection of the dead. And here it is, the hope of eternal life. Do you think poignantly in Paul's mind is what he had already told the Roman believers? Y'all know what he said in Romans 1.16? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to those who believe to the... And also, right? This, is, this has to be in Paul's mind as he is saying this. He was on trial for being committed to taking the promise of the gospel, which God had told him to do. The fulfilled promise that you've been waiting for for years. I'm on trial for that promise. Does verse 8 stand out to you? Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Don't you love it? I mean, he's on trial before the Sanhedrin and all the people of the world, the leading the world. And Paul says, what is the deal? Why, are you, why do you folks have such a hard time with the resurrection of the dead? Wake up. It's almost like Paul would say this. If you grant us Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, why can't you grant the empty tomb? That's what he's saying. Right? The same God that spoke this world into existence is the same God that conquered death. And that's why he says it. Why don't you believe in the resurrection? I can't believe that. You say you believe the Bible, Genesis to Malachi, and everything in it pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. If I grant you Genesis 1-1, you got to grant me the empty tomb. He's soaring at this point. God raises the dead. Raises the dead. And if that's not enough, check it out, 9 through 11. If it's not enough to be a Jew uh, of the strictest sect, Paul says, not only was I a Jew of the strictest sect, but I was also a Jewish terrorist. And yes, I said it right. Listen to verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked them up, Many of the saints in prison after receiving authority from the chief priest. By the way, who's standing behind him as he's on trial? The chief priest who gave him the letters. They're standing right there. They know full well what's going on. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Do you recall Stephen being martyred? Paul standing there holding the clothes of the ones who were throwing the rocks. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. You know what that means? He tried to make men and women and boys and girls blaspheme and say, I don't know Christ and I reject him. That was Paul's goal. And in raging fury, just listen to the text here. Strong words in the Greek. Against them, I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So here is Paul who not only has this pharisaical background, but here is a man who is a, again, he is a, a terrorist. I was willing to kill people. Over this issue of Christ, I had a hostility in my heart brought against Jesus. 
we really learn who the, the animosity is against, don't we? When we share our faith to the world, people don't hate you, they hate Christ. We know that's the truth. I tried to make them blaspheme. I didn't have one ounce of mercy, tolerance, compassion. I wanted women, men, boys and girls to blaspheme Christ. I wasn't just a committed Pharisee. I was a committed Christian killer. And so Saul of Tarsus believed that Jesus was a heretic and all of his followers. But boy, how did things change in verse 12? doesn't matter where you are this morning in your understanding of the Christian faith. But Paul's testimony is one of the strongest defenses of the fact that the gospel of Jesus Christ changes sinners in anything you could ever read. Even historians have struggled with this. They know Saul of Tarsus existed. And they know he died as a martyr for the cause of Christ. They cannot explain what happened. Well, if they would just listen to the Bible, they'll know what happened, right? Verse 12. In this connection, Paul is saying, In going as the strictest of the strictest, Benjamite, Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, Philippians 3, right? And not only that, but in my mind, wanting to stamp out this heretic Christ and everything involved with it. In this connection, I journeyed to Damascus with authority and commission of the chief priest. Who was it that gave him the letters? Ananias. And at midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Folks, that's a, that's a strong, glorious light that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when he had... When we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. Don't you love reading through Acts? Because that's not said in chapter 9. But as you, as you go through, you get more of Paul's testimony about actually what happens. And I said, who are you, Lord? That's a good response, right? Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and a witness to the things in which you have seen me, in me, and to those in which I will appear to you, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you, listen to this gospel presentation, to open their eyes so that they may turn from the darkness to light, And from the power of Satan to God. And that they may receive forgiveness of sins. And a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Again, every time Paul revealed a a fact about himself. He had the entire Sanhedrin standing behind him. And is this not an amazing event? Jesus showing up in all of his glory on the road to Damascus. Again, what an amazing testimony this is for the listeners of Paul's day. But it's just as relevant for listeners some 2,000 years later today. The truth and reality of this testimony. His conversion cannot be ignored by those who deny the Christian faith. Christ appeared to me, Paul said, and asked me a question. Why are you persecuting me? Again, folks, where is sacred space today? There's no such thing other than your heart, right? I'm not talking about that pumping instrument. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit lives where? Inside of you. So this whole issue of sacred space comes to rest here because to persecute the people of God is to persecute Jesus. And that's why Paul says, I thought he was actually persecuting the church, trying to kill them. But in essence, Jesus appears and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? 
And he says this, Paul, isn't it difficult to kick against the goads? All right, y'all awake? I see some of you nodding off. I'm not going to let you sleep. Wake up. It's going to get good here in a minute. Are you ready? All right, he's kicking against the goads. What is he talking about? Well, a goad is a sharpened stick that was used to keep cattle. And some of you uh, cattle herders or people who raise livestock, you know this, this stick was used with a sharp point for cattle and horses is to move them along in a certain direction. Right? That's what it's for. So the picture here is the hand of God moving Saul of Tarsus like a stubborn, kicking mule against a pointed stick. And in reality, Jesus is saying, dude, you just hurt yourself. That's exactly what's going on. He actually, catch this, Saul, nor the mule, nor the horse, whatever, can actually change the direction that the one with the goad is forcing him to go. Every time Saul kicked against it, he got poked. This happens because of the one who wills it. This happens because of the will of the one who wills it. Jesus is saying, Paul, you're not going to win. Keep kicking, you stubborn mule. You're the only one you're hurting is yourself. You're kicking against divine sovereignty and divine purpose and you are resisting that which is absolutely irresistible. No amens? Amen. Y'all don't believe that? Saul, you can't win. At this point, I cannot help but think that this is an important word for our young people sitting in this auditorium today. Who have been raised up in a Christian home. God has placed all kinds of goads around you. Godly parents a church that are poured into you with VBS, you have a Bible-preaching, teaching machine at this church. Many of you just resist embracing the truth. You kick, and you kick, and you kick, and the only one you're going to ever hurt is yourself. Our sovereign God will not give up. The one that ought to give up is you. You're kicking against the goads, and the one that holds the direction and wills it all is the one who says you can kick all you want to kick, but I will win at the end of the day. Can you think of the day that Paul went to lie down after holding those garments of Stephen? You think it ever crossed his mind, God, what am I doing? In the quietness of the night, as he saw people give their life for the cause of Christ. Am I missing it? Well, don't you know, folks, when Paul got knocked off that horse, it was hard. To know that it was Jesus that he was persecuting. And in the end, the Lord of glory won out. Just knocked him off his horse. Now in verse 16, we have his commission. Don't you love it? But rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared... Don't kick against the goads. The Lord knocked him down, and he didn't stop there, did he? Some of you Baptists think the moment you got saved is the moment you could check out and not serve God anymore. Oh, I'm on my way to heaven. I'm eternally secure. You forgot about the fact that God gave you a commission when he saved you. God saves everyone for service, not just the preacher. I'm not driving a bus out here and telling everybody to jump on the bus while I drive you around. You are called by God to serve him if you're saved. And so there's this commission. Get up on your feet with the authority of Christ. This is exciting. Matthew 28. 
all authority in heaven and earth has been granted to the Son. Now go and make disciples. If you put all the authority of all the world on this side and the authority of Christ on this side, on scales, it's going to go like what? With the strength and authority and power of Christ. And then notice what he says. What is he commissioned to do? He's commissioned to open their eyes. To turn people from darkness to light. To turn people from Satan to God. So that they might be forgiven and receive forgiveness. And how is it, in, how is it given? How does it happen? What's the instrument? Is it by works, Pharisees? No, it's by faith. Not by works. It's faith in Him. Now folks, this is not a mission just to try to get everybody in the United States to pray a prayer. You know that... You know that in foreign missions, if you've been there, you know this, don't you, Blake? You can get people to pray a prayer. My daughter and I, before I knew better, we took an evangel cube to uh, Peru, and everybody I went up to prayed the prayer to receive Christ and took the cube and kissed on it. Why? Because they saw that as a relic and an icon because they're Catholic. Do you believe that those people really prayed to receive the Christ of the Bible? No! They didn't. We're not trying to get people to pray a prayer. We're trying to get the Lord God of glory to open their eyes. To give them understanding. To take them out of darkness into light. To take them from the kingdom of Satan to the kingdom of God. Right? That's what we're trying to do. Paul was on this kind of mission. Paul had a rescue mission. Uh, He was rescued and now he's the rescuer. And how does he do it? He does it through the preaching of the gospel. Think about this. People who are blind. Living in darkness, under the, sway, under the way, sway of Satan, headed to hell. And he preached them the everlasting gospel accompanied by the Spirit to open their eyes so that they can turn to God. Did Paul see multitudes turn to God? Have you read Acts? Right? He did through the power of the gospel. Do you think Paul ever got tired of preaching the gospel and seeing hearts turned? People taken Translated from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. What an amazing understanding in the book of Acts that we see. Verse 19 is awesome. I'm moving along real fast, right? This is going a lot faster than you thought it would. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. Again, listen how Agrippa and Festus would have heard this. I'm bringing a gospel that is in full continuity with the Old Testament. In other words, it's strong enough for him to say, you believe the prophets, you must believe the gospel. That's how strong this is. And he hears all this. Open blind eyes, darkness to light, power of Satan to God, receive forgiveness of sins, place those among those who are sanctified by faith. Therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient. Isn't that awesome? I mean, when you're knocked off your horse and you're left in the dust and God says to you, you're going to do this, guess what you're going to do? You're going to get up and do it. And he was not obedient, verse 19, to what God had called him to do. I went and I preached repentance. Do you see it? But declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent, turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. In other words, if you're truly saved and you truly repent, then your life will look like the fruit of a repentant life. It won't be a one-time thing where you just... Trust Christ, and then you never repent again. I tell you, folks, if you don't repent now, you didn't repent then. It's a life of fruitfulness 
unto God. And Paul says, I was faithful to preach that kind of repentance. Repentance unto faith, to tell people to turn from a place of unbelief and trust Christ only. But also, once they repented, it was true repentance because they had a life manifested. They had fruit in keeping with repentance. Paul says, I've been faithful to tell them about the Messiah. And all they wanted to do is kill me. And what I'm saying to you is nothing less than what Moses and the prophets said. Did you notice that in this narrative, no one ever stands up in the court as a Jew and says, no, that's not what the Old Testament says. Don't y'all find that interesting? You know why? Because Paul had given them everything that it does say in the Old Testament. Everything that Paul said is documented in the Word of God. And so there's probably no arguing point other than to say, we just reject Jesus. We just reject Him as the Messiah. So Paul says, I'm preaching the message of the suffering servant. I'm preaching the message that the Bible says he will come forth from the grave. I'm preaching you this. I'm preaching to you that he would be a light to the nations and to the Jewish people. I'm preaching this. Remember when Jesus held the scroll and read that in Luke's gospel? It's a light to the nations. In verse 24, Festus interrupts the sermon. I'm glad y'all didn't interrupt the sermon today. And you're listening, but check this out. And as he was saying these things... In his defense, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you're out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Notice back up in 22. To this day I have had the help that comes from God. Now folks, think about this. He's alive that day and all the people in that room have tried to kill him. And yet he could say to them, God has kept me alive. In other words, I'm invincible until I finish what God called me to do. And so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass. And that Christ must suffer, and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Paul, you're nuts, was the response. I mean, you're talking about this Moses? Yeah, I may have heard of them. may have heard of him. All these prophets? Somebody coming forth from the grave? Paul, you are absolutely insane. You, you feel the strength of that. You're so smart. You've lost your mind. Well, I want to remind you that 1 Corinthians says that the gospel is an aroma unto death to those who are perishing. But it is an aroma unto life to those who are being saved. I want to remind you of 1 Corinthians 1. The gospel is foolishness to those who are perishing. The Bible says that the natural man cannot discern the things of God. You've got a carnal man, which is a Christian trying to live in both places, the world and the church. You've got the spiritual man who's living for Christ. But then you've got the natural man. And the natural man refers to people who are lost. And Jesus said the natural man cannot discern the things of God. So Paul speaks right up. Notice the text. I'm not out of my mind. And this is what I've contemplated all week. But I am speaking, Festus. Oh, excellent Festus. That would have been kind of like, oh, brilliant Festus. See the play in words? I'm insane, but you're brilliant. But here's the deal. But I'm speaking true and rational words. Don't you love that? Some translations will say sober words. What I'm teaching to you is true and rational words. That's our title for the sermon, right? True and rational words. My words are not the words of an insane man. My words are true and rational. 
I think that the gospel, Paul says, that I'm talking to you about, is very rational. It's not irrational. It's not a figment of my imagination. What I am preaching is sober, reasonable, and rational words. And then he drives that point home to Agrippa. You know these events. See it? For the king knows about these things. And to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice. For this has not been done in a corner. I mean, folks, here's a community reeling with the prospect that someone came forth from the grave and the tomb is empty. They know what's been going on. Agrippa knows all the history of the Jews. You know this, Agrippa. For I am persuaded that none of this... And note this. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? And before he ever takes a breath, I know you believe. Y'all see the connection? If you say you believe the prophets and you deny deny the gospel, then you are a heretic. You're a hypocrite. Because the entire Old Testament teaches us of the coming of Christ. And he says to him, you believe the prophets, so you ought to believe the gospel. Man, you talk about boldness. What direct gospel boldness. He faithfully expounded the glory and beauty of the gospel. And then he says, you believe the prophets, which is another way of saying you believe the gospel. We can take a lesson from this, can't we? Can we? How courageous are we when it comes to Christ and the gospel? It's okay to put people on the spot. Was Agrippa put on the spot that day? You better believe it. Who's actually on trial now? Not Paul. Agrippa's on trial. He's on trial before all his people. He's heard the word of God straight from God. And now Paul's able to say, What do you believe about the gospel? Do you believe the gospel? Just think of the boldness that this man had. They could have convened on him at that moment and ripped him to shreds. And yet here is Paul saying with passion, You believe the prophets. You believe the gospel. Amazing. It's okay to put people on the spot. People's souls are at stake, ladies and gentlemen. Do we desire to be so polite that we just send people off to hell? That's what our world says. Don't ever push religion. Well, ours is not a religion. Ours is a relationship. Are you listening? Religion is man seeking after God. Christianity is God seeking after man. Major difference. God takes the initiative in our salvation. It's the only salvation where God takes the initiative. Why? Because there's no other salvation under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. It's the only salvation. It's the only gospel. Do we desire to be so polite that we just let them go off to hell? Let's not be afraid to put them on the spot. You believe? You trust. You believe the gospel? Now, listen to this interesting translation. Notice Agrippa, Agrippa's response. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. And Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time, would you persuade me to be a Christian? Now, the KJV says, Almost thou persuadeth me to be a Christian. I hate to be this way to King Jimmy, but that's a terrible translation. That's not at all what it says. The New King James Version actually says, You almost persuade me to be a Christian. That's that. That is really bad translation of the Greek grammar. Actually, 
The NAS gets closer when it says, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And then the, the NLT, New Living Translation, Do you think you can make me a Christian so quickly? So actually in the Greek text, two things are in play here. It's either, Paul, you think in a short speech you're going to persuade me to be a Christian, or it could mean you're going to do it so easily. But what it doesn't mean is, whoo, I was right there, and almost you persuaded me to be a Christian. Terrible translation. Why? We know for sure by Paul's response. Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also who hear. If they would have just looked at the context, they'd have figured out what it meant, right? But they didn't look at the context. I don't, Paul says, I don't care if it's a long sermon, a short sermon, or there's a possibility that uh, he's saying to him, well, you're getting off it. It's not going to happen so easily for you to persuade me. In either case, time or easily, what we need to understand is that Agrippa is responding to the truth of the gospel that's been pounded into his life, and he draws back and he deflects the gospel away because he doesn't want to deal with it. He doesn't want to deal with the truth of the gospel. Paul doesn't miss a beat. Check this out. And Paul said, whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day. That means everybody in that court might become such as I. What's that mean? A prisoner of Christ. Saved by grace through faith. Except for these chains. What incredible words. Sober words. Truth. Y'all understand how, how important this is for the Christian faith? You understand that this is one of the strongest defenses of the Christian faith because this really happened in time and space. The events took place. They're documented. They're historical events. How many Muslims have you ever stood, stand up and say, what I've just given you is right and rational words? How many times on TV have you heard someone give their humanistic understanding of the world and saying, these are sober and rational words? Because to us, they make no sense whatsoever. But this makes sense. Why? Because it happened. We have circumstantial evidence of everything that's ever taken place in the Word of God. It's never been disproved one time. People try, but they end up coming up on the short end of the stick. Paul says, I've given you sober words. Rational, straight up truth from the Word of God. He was faithful to give a defense and proclamation of the gospel. The very one who opens eyes, turns darkness to light, turns from the power of Satan to God, forgives our sins, places us in, with an inheritance, and those sanctified by faith in Christ. That's what Paul gave him. Only through him can we receive faith and experience the forgiveness of sins and be guaranteed an imperishable inheritance. I don't know about y'all, but I like that. That's good stuff. What Paul spoke that day was sober, true, reality, rational words. Okay, I'm done. You ready for application? Won't take but a second. There are three responses to the gospel in this narrative. Did y'all see it? How many of you thought about the responses of Paul or Saul to Paul and Festus and Agrippa? If you thought about that going through, raise your hand. Well, I'm going to give you some good application then, right? Because you hadn't thought about it. But here is the unconverted Saul kicking against the goads. And then you have the pagan Festus who considers Paul's words of sober truth to be a reflection of the fact that you, dude, are insane. Right? That was his response. They make no sense. And finally, we have Agrippa. 
We have the one who has understanding, yet the words of sober truth, even though they're knocking hard at his heart's door, he refuses to give them place. He knows the history of monotheism. He knows the history of Judaism. He knows what the Bible says about the coming Messiah, and yet he doesn't want to give that a place in his life. True and rational words are preached to them on that day. I want to remind you of something, folks. True and rational words are preached in this place week after week. When you come to this church, you're not learning seven principles about how to get along with people at your job. You're hearing the Word of God. My goal is not to give you ten helps that will give you more romance in your marriage, men. You need it, probably. But that's not my goal. My goal is to preach the Word. Furthermore, the world does think we're nuts. And that's all right, as long as we're screwed on the right boat, right? It's okay to be a nut, but you better be connected to the right boat. And the boat, of course, is the gospel and the word of God. You hear words of sober truth, Lord's Day after Lord's Day at this church. And my, fo- my heart follows Paul's words in verse 29. I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I. That you might believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. We stand and preach these words, sober words. So, are you like the unconverted Saul who kicks against the goads? I know you guys, don't look at me so spiritual. You're here today because most of your wives made you come. Right? Thank the Lord for the goad of a wife who kicks you around. And God uses you to, to get your stubborn hind in. In this church. Because you're kicking against it. You're going to church tomorrow? I'll go if you go. Well, I think it'd be a good idea if we go to church together as a couple. You know it's been said that you haven't. We need to show up at church. and Your wife makes you go. How about you kids? I'll just be honest with you. Some of you are here. You know why you're here. Because your parents make you come. And if you had the choice, you'd probably stay home in the bed. Let's be honest. Good confession for the soul, right? All this stuff is boring. I don't get anything out of the sermon. Well, you might be like Festus. These people are insane. And I know when people come to this church and they hear the truth and they see people committed to big day of giving and getting on a plane and going to Guatemala and starting up a work in Vietnam. We look like we're insane, don't we? Hmm. You are in a place where words of sober truth are preached. I want to tell you, folks, if you don't accept the word of God, your perception of truth is wrong. So I'm asking you to stick around. Just stick around. Eventually, the God of eternity, who is like the hound of heaven, will knock you off your horse. And what you never perceived as truth, all of a sudden, will come flooding into your life like you could never imagine. Then there's Agrippa. You understand, but you sit there with clenched fists with the attitude of, Not so fast, preacher. In such a short time, would you make me a Christian? That pride, that pride that you think you're so intelligent, is a very pride that will sink your soul into hell forever. It'll keep you just far enough away from salvation without having it. Being close is not close enough. So God uses sober words of truth as goads. And he sets them all around you. 
And my plea to you is just like Paul's plea was some 2,000 years ago before the Sanhedrin and Roman Empire. My plea is this. Embrace Jesus Christ. Embrace Jesus Christ. Then you too will want other people to trust Jesus Christ. You see the connection? Man, did God ever change Paul on the road to Damascus. And he couldn't help but proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to all those he came in contact with. So who are you this day? Festus, Paul, Saul kicking against the goats, Agrippa, embrace Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for helping me get through this amount of material. It's a lot, but Lord, is it ever sober truth. The reality set forth right before Israel that their Messiah had come. And Paul said, everything promised in the Old Testament has been fulfilled in Jesus. And what I am on trial for is the hope of Israel. Our Messiah, the one who would forgive us of our sins and give us eternal life. And we would receive him not by works, but by faith. Lord, my prayer is for people in this building that's heard sober truth. That you would break through into their hearts and minds. And help them see how glorious you are. And mighty to save. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.